Before we get to this week's episode, we're excited to announce that Out of Order has joined the Democracy Group, a brand new network of podcasts about democracy, politics, and civil discourse today. While Out of Order explores the hot-button issues in foreign affairs, at its core, it's all about how democracies and the values that drive them are evolving in our chaotic world. The Democracy Group is organized and funded by the McCourtney Institute for Democracy at Penn State, which produces the Democracy Works podcast. Other partner shows are Democracy Matters, Future Hindsight, How Do We Fix It, In the Arena, Swamp Stories, and the Science of Politics. Find all of the episodes and sign up for our bi-weekly newsletter at www.democracygroup.org. And of course, follow the network on Twitter, at Group Democracy. Welcome to Out of Order, a German Marshall Fund podcast where we discuss how the world was, is, and will be ordered. I am Rachel Tausenfreund, the editorial director of GMF, and I'm joined today in our Berlin studio by three of my European colleagues. Jan Teschau, the Europe director out of the Berlin office, Michał Baranowski, director of our Warsaw office, and Martin Quincey, who is the deputy director of our Paris office. And we are here to talk about NATO and European defense, and where we are three months after Macron threw kind of a bomb into the middle of discussions about NATO and the future of European defense. So first, I'm going to start with my French colleague, Martin. Macron gave an interview with The Economist where he, I think if you translate it directly, accused NATO of suffering from brain death. And why don't you let us know sort of what the context in France was? Because in, in from what I understand in France, it wasn't you know, as controversial or as shocking the statement as it was in many other European capitals. So let's start with a little background. Yeah, no, absolutely. It wasn't actually that controversial, which was uh, what was interesting to look from Paris was the reactions uh, from, from the different European capitals and from D.C. Uh, if you look at the interview, um, the way Macron kind of talks about NATO is, is kind of a traditional French criticism of NATO, which is NATO as a military organization is fine, is doing well, is actually doing what it should do to deter its enemies and adversary. But as an alliance, there we have a problem. And this is really this idea of brain death, which is the brain is not working, the body is fine, we have the muscles, but the brain is not there anymore. And if you look at it that way, really from Paris, this wasn't really controversial. Uh, in terms of communication, obviously, the kind of buzzword was 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 criticized by, by, by many, but the substance was was kind of, yeah, everybody knew that. This is French uh, um, way of thinking about NATO for years now. Now, if you think about the context, what is often missed is that the interview took place just after the Turkish operation in, in northern Syria. But it was published a few weeks later at a point where we actually were rather celebrating, uh, I think, uh, the German uh, re reunification and thinking about this kind of context, historical context, in a way that the Turkish operation was already kind of forgotten. But in the French uh, mind, this is a turning point. This is a moment where you have one NATO ally going against the national interest, security interest of at least one other, France, by, Can you by, just give the background of right. so by, what by the problem was for the French? Invading with the, uh, 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 the, the, the northern, northern Syria and effectively weakening the Kurdish troops on the ground, uh, Turkey was going against our best allies in, our, in the fight against ISIS, in the fight against Daesh. And 
considering that for France, this is the number one priority in terms of security challenges, this was, this was really a big deal. And so the context was France being truly shocked by what had happened. Not only the Turkish operation, but the U.S. decision to give a green light to Erdogan to, to do that. And France feeling a bit alone because other allies didn't seem to be that troubled by, by what had happened. So there was a need for kind of a bold statement saying something bad had happened, something really important, and we're not talking about it, which is a symbol of NATO's brain death, in a sense. So that's the total context. So, Jan, I'll go to you next. In France, the remarks weren't controversial, but where we sit in Berlin, it, it looked a little different. It looked very different, um, and that is because of, of, of a very different, first of all, threat perception in Germany, the fight against ISIS, terrorism in general, and the entire Sahel region, which is very much in the focus of the French analysts, is of much less interest in the German context. So the priorities were different, and secondly, because of our different relationship with NATO. Germany sees itself much less of an independent security player, and it is a much less independent security player than France. It does not have a seat on the Security Council at the United Nations. It's not a nuclear power. So for us, declaring the one thing that we have that guarantees our security brain debt was, even though it might have been true, was a very silly thing to say because it undermined the whole thing, you know, additionally. I think this was the major perception here. I think you would find quite a number of people in Germany who would have similar concerns about the political function of NATO not being at its best. But, you know, to say such a thing and to risk the collateral damage was held against the French president. So it created a lot of hysteria and nerve-wracking debates here. And so uh, it also fed, of course, into the Trump frenzy, with Trump, you know, having also created a lot of doubts on NATO in the German context. And now the other Western partner that we have, France, whom we want to rely on, you know, basically also dismissing NATO out of hand uh, was something that, you know, was was quite shocking to hear uh, from our perspective. You know, the damage control then set in very quickly. And I think now that we're talking early February, a kind of the major shockwaves have gone away. Um, but it is quite clear and, and interesting and illustrating how different strategic outlooks, interests, and political and strategic cultures can be, and how, therefore, the reactions to such a sentence must be different within that, you know, close Western European context. So, um, Michal, we saw these two perspectives, and uh, Poland has also its own very sort of specific threat perception and position within NATO and Europe. So what were the initial reactions like to the Macron statement? So the initial reactions were extremely, extremely critical, sort of <laughs> on the spectrum, starting with, with Paris being not controversial, Berlin being quite controversial. In Warsaw, they were seen as uh, extremely controversial, irresponsible, mainly for the fact that, that Jan already mentioned that for us, NATO is absolutely centerpiece of our security. So talking about the key institution for European security as brain death, that's, that's unacceptable. The perception vis-a-vis -vis United States in Poland is also very different. Poland is much more U.S. friendly. Uh, the importance of the relationship is is not only within NATO, but also in bilateral terms. The number of uh, the presence of U.S. Army is increasing in Poland, U.S. Air Force as well. So all that run against the grain of the expert and public debate, especially that the interview in the end uh, came very close to the leaders' meeting in London. So it was, in a way, perceived as being aimed at directly at not starting a debate, but really damaging NATO. 
What I would say, though, is, you know, after the initial remarks, it's very inter interesting to see that it did provoke the debate. Uh, I was myself very skeptical and worried about it. It did provoke a debate uh, across Europe, certainly in Warsaw. Now, uh, I know we'll get to it, but it, in the end, it resulted in a visit of President Macron just uh, over the last two days, where he actually said NATO is doing great. And Poland and France signed a declaration of strategic cooperation that talks about NATO as a central institution for European security and defense, but also talks about the need for developing greater European capabilities, something that arguably President Macron wanted to reach, something where Poland was more skeptical just a few months ago. But the debate has indeed moved partially because of the interview and certainly because of the recent visit. So, Jan, would you also agree? I mean, you said the initial response was damage prevention or damage minimization in Berlin. This, this was definitely true. Have we seen, you know, positive debate between, let's say, France and Germany, Germany and Poland in the months since? Let me add one, before I come to that yeah. question, let me add one little facet here, which is also important in the in the Macron interview context. Um, I think what, what gave this whole thing additional juice, if you will, and, and created the skepticism in Warsaw and, and also in Berlin was that, you know, uh, you know, at the same time, Macron was also suggesting that an overture with Putin and Russia uh, should be done, some sort of rapprochement, some kind of conversation, dialogue format with them, uh, which was initially unclear as to what that meant. Uh, and it fed into this NATO context. So to do both things at the same time, dismissing NATO as brain dead, while at the same time, you know, cozying up to Putin, which is what this looked like initially, that I think that kind of triggered this nervous breakdown in security circles. Now, in the meantime, that has been sorted out. Uh, and this this is the answer to your question. I think a lot of conversations have, had to have taken place. The, the allies had the chance to ask lots of questions to Macron and his advisors. I think they went to great lengths to explain where this came from, that this didn't fall from the sky, that this was not about strategic naivete or anything like this, but about a genuine strategic concern over the security of Europe. So I think, you know, the, the, the initial kind of force misunderstanding that was there has to a certain extent, you know, kind of, you know, disappeared. But at the same time, you can still see how um, the Germans and the French for sure, um, you know, are on different strategic planets, basically, fundamentally, and see different opportunities in all of this. So I think the kind of the hysteria of the day has subsided, but the fundamental strategic divisions in Europe have not disappeared and they will keep us busy, you know, for some time to come. Matin, on the Russia point, what was Macron suggesting and how has that suggestion maybe morphed or changed um, in the time since? Well, I think Jan is, is right that there was um, an added confusion because it came after the, the rapprochement uh, remarks. There was a sequence actually of events because there's also the French veto to uh, uh, EU enlargement to Western Balkans that came as a kind of a, a package of France being a problematic actor for the different European partners. Now, on, on Russia, um, there are a few ways to look at it. One is purely bilateral. There's a need for France to rebuild certain uh, channels of communication that have been uh, cut after uh, after Crimea and and during the, the Syrian war. Uh, the, the, the kind of French uh, way, the French officials' way of presenting it would be, look, we are actually doing things that the Germans and the Brits are already doing, uh, say at the military level, talking to counterparts on cyber. And, and now we're being blamed for doing what others are doing, which is unfair. Now, there's another piece which is more we need to talk about this kind of big ideas of European security architecture, whatever it means. It means, in particular in this context, post-INF Europe, 
and making sure that if the US and the Russians are talking about arms control, about these architecture, we need to be part of the conversation, which is not the case today. And, and this is a, a real source of concern for, for Paris, uh, that they know that there is something going on, but we don't know what. And the third thing, which is interesting, is that there is, at least at the Elysee, the idea that at one point, whether in a year or in 10 years from now, the Russians will wake up and will say, we don't want to be the junior partners of China. And so at that point, the Russians will come back to the table and they will need the Europeans. And so we want to make sure that we don't miss this opportunity. So there's this kind of gamble that, you know, we just want to open the door so that when the Russians come back to have a constructive discussion about their relationship with Europe, because they don't want to be this in this weird thing with China, we don't miss that. How does that look in Warsaw, Michal? So this, this part, of course, is the most problematic. And I think this is where we will continue to have very much divergent views, especially between Warsaw and, and, and Paris. And the remarks have been, and they continue to be, including their most recent, recent visit. I think that on, on Russia, we agree to disagree uh, because they are seen as, on one hand, uncoordinated uh, and are, you know one could one says leadership the other says well how about you talk with allies before you do it but also very much naive because it's it's again worried that the rapprochement is dialogue for the sake of dialogue and the argument that that Martin pointed out to which is also argument that that was published uh, in a letter from the EU's ambassador to to Moscow about Europe sort of hugging Russia close enough to pull it away from from China is is absolutely not seen as credible in Warsaw because of the way that uh, Russia Russian foreign policy uh, is working out. So all these uh, has been met with deep skepticism and really emphasizing the point that now Europe seems to want to re-engage with Russia while Russia has not changed its behavior in any way when it comes to war in Ukraine, annexation of Crimea, uh, yet actually added uh, misbehavior and uh, violation of international law and our interest in the Middle East, in the in the high north. So, so that's that's where I I think there is a very large space. Yet I think that the the nice thing that happened is that we started talking to it. Each other, right before we met. I mean, Jan asked a very good question: Do not do Poles now trust that France would coordinate and would talk to Warsaw before they talk to Warsaw, at least around the same time? The fact is that we are in the beginning of this regaining trust because the trust on Russia, with France in particular, but to an extent with Germany as well, especially because of Nord Stream two, but not only, have really been well broken. Jan, should Warsaw trust Paris and should they trust Berlin? Oh, the trust issue in Europe, right? <laughs> um, I, I have written several times that I think that Europe, by and large, is actually a, a low-trust political environment, as opposed to what most people believe, that somehow we are this kind of more or less unified continent. I think that's not true. At a deeper level, you know, there's very little trust, whether that's on economic governance or on security and defense or energy policy or some other fields, you know, you will find pretty profound divisions, not just in policy, but in basic trust almost everywhere. I think when it comes to Germany's attitude vis-a-vis Russia, it's always been a little bit of a mix. Bag. On the one hand, in more recent memory, of course, we have, you know, the Chancellor and Germany being kind of the strongest 
advocates of the Russia sanctions after the annexation of Crimea. Germany was actually leading on this. It came in late, but then it started to lead, and it has stayed on the course fairly forcefully. But at the same time, they did Nord Stream 2 and uh, and and a few other things, overtures, you know, um, that, that then kind of risk, you know, undermining trust again. I think with Germany, it, it's quite clear, and it's something that people need to understand out there. And this makes it ambiguous even for us, you know, for us German analysts. The Germans have very little trust in Putin. Actually, the, the overwhelming attitude vis-a-vis Putin is quite negative in this country. That is not seen with pleasure or, you know, not seen as a partner that you can rely on. At the same time, Germany is very, very averse to genuine conflict with Russia. Um, so if it can avoid the conflict, if it can avoid a standoff or some sort of confrontation with Putin and the Kremlin and, and Russia in general, it will try to do so. That is part of a historical um, experience, uh, partly a trauma, partly also a bit of a complex. Um, so you have a fairly complicated, ambiguous attitude that the Germans have vis-a-vis Russia. And that's not necessarily the kind of attitude that creates a lot of trust in other players who are much more critical of Russia, and, and perhaps rightfully so also, in my opinion. And so that that makes the whole Russia conundrum, you know, very, very difficult. Uh, when it comes to France, the trust relationship has also been ambiguous, but less so. It's very clear that France, next to the United States, is the other big Western partner that Germany has. Germany, for a long, long time, has been, you know, willing to really, you know, basically say, if we do something at all in Europe, in whatever context, France needs to be by our side. And that has kind of plastered over for a long time that the strategic outlooks on the two countries were actually quite different. That never really mattered much as long as Germany was clearly a non-strategic player and that demand didn't exist to be one. Now that the demand exists and Germany has to become a strategic player because all of Europe needs it, all of a sudden those divides become more visible and all of a sudden, you know, these kinds of, you know, feelings, oh my God, they don't understand us, you know, they are on a completely different kind of planet. All of a sudden that is much more visible. It has always existed, but it is much more relevant now. And it's good that this is being debated finally because if we can't sort this out, we cannot sort European security out. Yeah, no, on on the trust issue, um, just to add one thing, I don't think obviously there will be ever this kind of idea that Paris will check with Warsaw before they could actually talk to anybody or talk to Moscow. But there are a a few institutions that are already existing that help share information. One is the European Intervention Initiative that was launched by France. And you have a group of countries that were actually more aware of what France was doing uh, with Russia because they were part of this uh, this organization in which the the Minister of, uh, of Armed Forces could share her feedback after her visit to Moscow. So there are things, you know, more uh, uh, to take place. Poland is not part of the initiative, unfortunately, but there are already ways to, to I think, manage the, the expectation. Uh, one thing, though, is I don't think for France there is some kind of delusion of grandeur that there will be a, a Yalta conference 2.0 and will divide Europe into spheres of influence with, with Putin. I mean, this has never been ever the idea behind the rapprochement. And when you saw the reaction in some European capitals as, in a way, is giving up on its partners and perhaps even betraying some allies and trying to now uh, give, give some part of Europe to, to Russian sphere of influence, that, that, is, that is just irrelevant to understand the French thinking. Uh, France knows that it doesn't have this kind of power to begin with. Uh, you know, we were not actually uh, at Yalta. We're not uh, uh, going to be at Yalta 2.0. And uh, so there the, the needs to be, obviously, expectation management of bo- on both sides uh, and not necessarily project on France this idea that, oh, this is this goalless delusion of grandeur of talking again. That's, that's not what's behind it here. 
Um, Michal, you you mentioned this actually um, earlier, but I want to go back to to sort of round up this part of the discussion, which is Macron just recently was in mm-hmm. Warsaw, and it was uh, not expectations management, but it was definitely relationship management as a kind of direct result of uh, the November comments and the Russia suggestion. So did it go as expected? How did it go? So first of all, this is all still very fresh and, and new. And I think it's good to point out why at least we in Warsaw think that he came and why there was such openness to this visit. I mean, this was Macron's first visit uh, after Brexit. And uh, there was an openness in Warsaw. And I think that's also where France, uh, why Macron came, because the power within the EU is changing with the Brexit. Poland is using an important ally. France is losing an ally as well. And in all this, Germany is very much missing in action. So in this setup, all of a sudden, Paris and Warsaw actually need each other much more than just a few, few months ago. So I think that's the, that's the setup. Now, this, was, this, this visit came, uh, this was the first visit in six years. Poland was 21st EU member country. So it's not exactly high on the priority list for President Macron. And the relations were truly frozen at all levels. I I watched this very carefully. But this has actual real potential of a new chapter. I mean, President Macron announced that this is a new chapter. Uh, Prime Minister Morawiecki said this is a new chapter. We'll see. But there is certainly a very clear potential because the litany of of areas for stronger cooperation is very, very, very long. But most more, more importantly, this is the moment where I could actually see the mutual trust being rebuilt, mutual understanding what France means, not only when it comes to Russia, but also when it comes to NATO, to European defense. This was really priority number one. There was a, a lot about economic ties. There was a lot about climate. There was a lot about future of Europe, European budget uh, and future of Europe as a whole. On the issue that we talked specifically, I actually, uh, this was not mentioned as explicitly by the president or the Polish president or prime minister, but I can totally see a, a process by which Poland and France would think through Poland actually joining European intervention initiative. The, the seed has been planted the the strategic declaration it actually for in, in my reading creates a big move both for Poland and for France so you know this things are happening <laughs> this things are happening there is even a little tiny change also not on policy but maybe perception when it comes to the US where president trump even in very pro american poland is increasingly seen as so unpredictable that even quite Eurosceptic governments will look to other European players and say, oh, maybe we need to take a couple of our eggs from the American basket and put it in some European baskets. And precisely of this, I think there is actually a quite important lesson on European leadership in this entire episode. Um, I think President Macron had the feeling that he needed to lead. Um, and that is actually basically a good impulse because this Europe needs more leadership. Uh, but then you got to be careful in the way that you communicate this because if you lead like this, um, you have two choices. You can either try to coordinate up front so that people do not misunderstand you. But if you think that that's not going to lead anything to lead to anything, you can choose the disruptive path of leadership, which is to you know throw a stone into the water and see where it splashes and 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 what that creates. 
I think Macron chose the latter, triggering the predictable fears with his partners and then trying to see whether that creates any openings. Um, that is a leadership style that is not necessarily what other partners like very much. But since they themselves often do not really exercise that kind of leadership, they can't complain. You or know, any because kind of any kind of leadership. So, you know, uh, how, how can they then, you know, criticize Macron for at least doing something? So he, here's the issue. You know, there needs to be more leadership across the board. And I think there needs to be more careful leadership. Outside of this, um, and this, this applies specifically to Germany, I think where we've seen what somebody called in a meeting today the Merkel moratorium, you know, some kind of weird silence, uh, you know, with Germany not really producing any kind of leadership that people can cling to. But it is also, I think, fundamentally important that if you want to lead Europe, you cannot lead Europe by triggering its fears. What you do when you lead Europe by triggering its fears is you divide it. On a, on a last point, I mean, this is the big elephant in, in every European security room, basically. What if there's a second Trump? presidency? How is Trump plus Europe? Are we going to see maybe uh, a more united Europe in response that at least will, you know, then take NATO in a certain direction? Or how optimistic are you that NATO is going to get strategic with potentially former years of problematic leadership uh, from an international cooperation standpoint in Washington? I think NATO will not become more strategic with a, with a new Trump administration. Now, the question is whether Europe could become more united, as you said. There is even, I would say, there are a few people in Paris or in Brussels who would wish for Trump to be re-elected because that's the wake-up call we need once again so that we understand the world has changed. Yeah, one call wasn't enough, we exactly. need it twice. <laughs> uh, I mean, to be honest, we call we, we, we talk about wake-up calls every every two, three years now, right? Uh, Syria, Crimea, migration crisis, Trump, Brexit, everything is a wake-up call. Now could be the one that we really need 2020. Um, now, in Paris, what is interesting is that there is more focus on, on the kind of deeper trends of U.S. foreign policy. So it's not so much about Trump. It's about things that happened before him and will, will continue after. So obviously, the November uh, 2020 election uh, is important, but it doesn't change much in terms of strategic thinking about U.S.-Europe relationship and what Europe needs to do for its own security. Obama already started uh, uh, with the red line in Syria in 2014, maybe even with the leading from behind in, in Libya. This, this idea that Europeans have to do more and that in the end, the US will not always be there to, 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 to save the day. And the French have that in mind. So obviously th there is concern. There, there could be, you know, Trump 2.0 could be the end of NATO, could be uh, US leaving the WTO. There are many things that could be envisioned. But it's, it doesn't change the big picture, which is Europeans need to find a way to strategic autonomy, to strategic sovereignty, and to be an actual power in, in, in the general sense of the term. So in Warsaw, it's, it's cool to, to listen to Martin because in Warsaw, Trump, second Trump also doesn't change particularly the strategic outlook. Uh, the outlook is then U.S. will continue to be a European power. Uh, yes, uh, Europeans need more capabilities, but it's all in addition to NATO. The current government is, uh, has very good relationship with Trump. Trump seems to like Poland. So uh, the worry, though, is more about that. Uh, my worry, including, is that second Trump is actually likely to divide Europe even further. And this is actually where it's a nice transition to Nyan, because we'll be looking to, to Germany, whether Germany actually gets off the fence in this you know, we've been joking that Poland is doing the strategic embrace. 
uh, of United States, France is, you know, strategic autonomy and and Germany has been in this strategic patience, whether Germany gets off the fence into anti-American direction uh, or whether it stays still this middle power. So what does Germany think? I think the, uh, the, the question as to whether Germany can become more forthcoming, more active, you know, more strategic, more paying, has actually very little to do with Trump. It has a lot to do with breaking through our own paralysis here at home in terms of our domestic politics. We have a grand coalition in place that creates essentially foreign policy paralysis, and not just on the big questions, but also on some smaller questions. Nobody knows how long this coalition is going to last. It will end at the latest in the end of 21, but it could you know, end earlier. But with this particular constellation, a domestic power fight in the books over Merkel's succession, an EU presidency, which will be the priority of the chancellor for the second half of this year, I don't see any major kind of movement coming out of Germany before this coalition ends. And so that makes us all, you know, quite curious about what other potential constellations are in for Germany domestically in the future after Merkel. Uh, and, and that also, you know, Is, is, is something that you can only speculate about. I would not, as, as much as that pains me, I would not expect this country to come around in any kind of major way before this government ends. Um, I think a, a fundamentally new uh, or even just slightly more forthcoming kind of strategy will only be in the books with a new constellation, with two parties in power that want to prove that they can leave this time, this time of paralysis behind them. Um, and before that, you know, not so much. Um, even the relationship, you know, anti-American versus, you know, Uh, you know, still somehow affiliated with America, um, you know, that is something that is not seen by Germans for the most part through the security lens. America has a different function for, for Germany primarily. It's a security provider, yes, but primarily it's the country from which we learned our democracy. That's not the case in France. And that's not the case in Poland. And so our complex with America is less protection. It is more that If America looks wobbly on democracy and values, you know, and institutions and liberal open society, we, who learned our democracy from them, must fear for our own democracy ourselves. It's a projection thing. The complex that we have, the psychological connection vis-a-vis -vis America, is only partially about security. It is about something much deeper. And that's why you can see also the most kind of anti-Trumpist rhetoric and the strongest numbers in terms of anti-Trumpism across Europe, you can see them coming from Germany. Jan, Martin, Michao, thank you very much. We will look forward to watching what comes next for NATO. Thanks, Rachel. Thank you. Thanks. The Out of Order podcast is produced by Zachary Tarrant and me, Sydney Simon. Rachel Tausenfreund is the editorial director. Sound design and editing are by Zachary Tarrant. <laughs>